I'm Talmadge Boston, and welcome to Cross-Examining History, where we explore America's fascinating past with our country's leading historians and thought leaders. Yesterday, I cross-examined David McCullough, two-time Pulitzer Prize-winning historian and author of the new book, The Pioneers, the heroic story of the settlers who brought the American ideal west, which will be coming out on May the 7th. David had plenty of things to say on the subject of our pioneers moving from New England to the Ohio country beginning in 1787, so let's get right into the episode. Enjoy! All right, are you ready? I'm ready. Okay, David, you say in your acknowledgments that from the very beginning of what led to this book, you aspired to create a story about the pioneers that aligned with Thornton Wilder's play, Our Town. Explain, yes. how, your book, explain how your book compares to Wilder's play. Well, the play itself, as I expect you know, uh, all takes place in a small town in New Hampshire. And the people in it are of no particular consequence, it would appear. Uh, there's certainly not any historic celebrities among them. And the uh, setting is modest, and it would all seem to be most unimportant and maybe even most uninteresting. But as the play evolves, you begin to understand how much of the human experience and the, and the human trials and and uh, joys um, are contained in the lives of these people. And my feeling was that uh, wouldn't it be a marvelous undertaking to write a book about a town and its story, uh, which would seem to be of no importance historically, um, and the characters would all be people that no one in has ever heard of, or very few have ever heard of. And But I thought to myself, where in the world would I ever find a body of original diaries and letters and the like uh, that, that would make such a, an undertaking possible? You, you have to have about 10 to 20 times the volume of first-person accounting, uh, uh, personal, uh, public uh um, newspaper articles, all that sort of thing, in order to do the story adequately. And when I discovered this collection, the, the collection at Marietta, it was like no experience I'd ever had. I've had a great number of marvelous surprise findings over the years, but never anything like the collection at Marietta College. Letters, journals, daily notes on the weather, natural history notes, memoirs, items numbering in the thousands, in addition to maps, drawings, and even superb oil portraits of the five principal characters of my story. The greater the time spent with the material, the greater my excitement became. Excitement such as I, I truly I'd never known in all the years I've been working on books. It was not just 
the quantity of the material at the Marietta Library, but the quality of it, the quality of the writing, the quality of the, th of the thinking, the quality of the values, the values so delineated by the story and so clearly in need in our time. I'm interested in the people. I'm interested in what they took on, what they did, and kept at it, despite such horrendous adversities and such suffering. Why, why was it that they were the way they were? And why did it turn out for them? And so for us, as it did. Uh, at the very beginning of the book, I quote one of the characters, Ephraim Cutler, uh, in, a, in, a, in a line that he delivered in a speech about the history of these pioneers. He said, the character ought to be known of these bold pioneers. From whence did they spring? For what causes, under what circumstances, and for what objects were difficulties met and overcome? There's and of course, always that's, a your, lot. that's your epigraph. <laughs> yes, and there's always a lot to learn from history, to say the least. And I feel that what we can learn from this story, from this amazing accomplishment of those people, uh, is of infinite value, particularly today, uh, because of, of the values that they stood for, the values that we like to think of as part of the American character. And, the, um, and not just speaking or mouthing these uh, values, but living up to them. Um, one of my favorite quotations in the whole collection that I found um, was from the daughter of one of the principal characters, Joe Barker. Joe Barker was a was a uh, fellow from New Hampshire who uh, was a, a carpenter, and he came out with his family uh, in this movement to Ohio. And he ultimately became one of the leading architects of his time. Uh, because he grew in his work, as it were. And his daughter, Catherine, uh, remembered later how they were raised at home. What were the, the values that they were taught? And I think we all need to be reminded of this. He said, she said rather, to remember to be useful, pleasant, and respectful, just, to all, continuing the quote, black and white, good to the poor, now not showing pride or selfishness, but kindness and goodwill, and to see to it that we look to our own more than others' faults. He liked, she liked to quote words to the wise frequently repeated by her mother, wonderful mother, Elizabeth Parker, that could have served for the motto of most of the, of the community. Count the day lost at which the setting sun sees at his close no worthy action done. Uh, in other words, get something done in the day that it has value. And as I've 
like to tell people, and I hope I get it across in the book, these people weren't there doing what they were doing, attempting to to uh, establish a community in the middle of the wilderness uh, because they wanted to get rich, make a lot of money, or be famous, or to have a lot of possessions. No, not at all. They had high purpose. And of course, most of it, and I must admit, I knew very little, if anything, about the Northwest Ordinance and about the whole creation of this empire, as it were, uh, north and west of the Ohio River, out of which would come five states, uh, Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, Michigan, and Wisconsin. It was a territory as big as all of the 13 colonies. In other words, when that territory was turned over to the United States, by the British at the peace treaty in Paris that ended the Revolutionary War, that seeding of that territory doubled the size of our country. It's bigger than all of France. Imagine. And, but there were no permanent settlements in it at all. There were the natives, and there were wolves and bears and panthers and rattlesnakes and floods and you, you name it. They were there as a problem, and immense trees, trees of a size that we can hardly imagine today. And it all had to, there were no roads, there were no bridges, there were no hospitals, no churches, no um, court, courts of law. It all had to be started over again from scratch. And they were trying to, to build what was essentially a New England town with New England values, old Puritan values, if you will, uh, in, in a new territory. And most important of all, they wanted this new realm, this new world of our country to not just have words of admirable quality, such as all men are created equal, but lived up to it. Therefore, there would be no slavery in that part of our new country. There would be, if all went as they hoped, public education for everybody, from grade school all the way through college. There would be complete freedom of religion, complete freedom of religion, and, um, and that they would treat the native peoples with respect and, and appreciation of, of their importance. And... And I can't overstate the admirable um, rectitude of their principal leading spirit at the beginning, Manasseh Cutler, the famous uh, 18th century polymath, a man who was three, had three doctoral degrees in, of, his, of his own. He was a doctor of law, a doctor of medicine, a doctor of divinity, all in one person. He was like much like Benjamin Franklin. He was interested in everything. He was one, probably the leading botanist, American botanist of the day. And he was the one who went and convinced the Congress, even before we had a constitution or a president, that they had to pass this Northwest Ordinance, and he succeeded, doing it all by himself. The word lobbyist or lobbying hadn't even been invented yet. 
Well, in uh, <clears throat> reading your book and reading your acknowledgments, it sounds like you first heard his name in 2004 when you visited Cutler Hall at Ohio University. That's right. And so what was I it? Was, I, was in, I was invited to come and give the commencement speech that year where the university was celebrating its 200th anniversary. And I was quite complimented. I accepted happily. And, but I didn't know very much at all about the university. And when I found out that the oldest building on campus, I believe it's the oldest college building west of the Allegheny Mountains still. And um, it was called Cutler Hall. I thought, who was Cutler? And when I began to read about him, I was just fascinated. Um, and and what a story he is was, and uh, that led me to go down to Marietta, uh, and that's when I came upon the fabulous collection in the Marietta College Library. Now, let me just emphasize something very important. If I had found out about this story that nobody had told. I would have pursued it no matter where these diaries and letters and maps and surveys were all located. They could have been located in half a dozen different universities or, or libraries. And they could have been in attics uh, somewhere, who knows where. But they were all in one place. And that one place was on a beautiful campus of a fine college. They were in a relatively new, superb library with a superb archivist in charge of the collection. And it was all in the town where most of the story took place. So it was, a, in a way, a dream, the dream finding. Certainly like nothing in, in my writing life. I've been writing now for more than 50 years. This is my 12th book. But I've never been quite so excited, quite so uh, swept up um, in the importance of the story. Not just that the story is a phenomenal story, but it's an important story. And I had the chance to tell it for the first time. Well, David, there aren't many people in the world who know as much about American history as you do. So why do you think Manessa Cutler's place in our history basically fell through the cracks until your revival of him, which will come in your new book. Well, tell me, that's a, um, that's a mystery to me. I can't understand it. Um, and then, uh, as you may remember, we have a home on Martha's Vineyard, which Martha's Vineyard has been in my wife's family for the life of my wife's family for well over 100 years. And when I found out that I told Rosalie and I was very excited about this book and this, uh, the idea of the story. And I told her, Vanessa Cutler went to Yale. That's where I went to college. I said, and his two oldest children, his two sons, including the one who goes out to Ohio and makes such an important contribution, Ephraim Cutler, were born on Martha's Vineyard. And then I said, you please always, please understand that in order to get to Ohio, they had to go through Pittsburgh. Well, Pittsburgh is my hometown. 
Mm-hmm. And I grew up with the Ohio River, literally. And she said, well, you've got to write that book. It's, it's in the stars. You've just got to do it. And I felt very at home in much of the story because it was part of the environment that I knew well from my own life's experience. Well, uh, as you mentioned a few minutes ago, uh, it all re- the story really started with uh, John Adams and uh, John Jay, uh, yes. who played the leading role in acquiring the Northwest Territory for the United States in 1783. And that territory included the Ohio country with the land and the river that's the subject of your new book. So obviously you won the Pulitzer for your biography of John Adams did you learn anything new by revisiting this treaty negotiating work of him and seeing the specifics of what that work led to? Well, John Adams and John Quincy Adams are threaded through this book. First of all, John, John Adams and, and Manessa Cutler knew each other. Uh, Manessa Cutler had been to John Adams' home many times when Adams was the Vice President George Washington in Philadelphia. And then at the very end of this story, John Quincy Adams, who has become a congressman after being president, arrives in Ohio and stops at Marietta uh, on his way back up the Ohio River and gives a talk in the congregational church there that was built by the the founders, by the pioneers. And it's about the importance of what they had accomplished. Now, one thing that I learned or came to appreciate, which I never had before, is that the Puritans were really not much like I think most of us imagine them to have been. They didn't, I think, as I understood it, they all wore black, and they wanted nobody to ever have any fun. Well, that's simply not true. They wore colorful clothes. They liked to sing. They liked to dance. They liked to have a drink. Um, And many of their fundamental values, particularly at the importance of education, are what we have to be immensely grateful to them for. And it was this, because they were convinced, they were dedicated to aspiration of high education, higher education, in that we can't really reach an understanding of the potentials of the human spirit, of of God, of, of, of the Bible, all that, unless we can read, and unless we keep learning, the love of learning, the importance of education. And that's all through this establishment of the, of the person legal community in all of the Northwest Territory, which was Marietta. And Manasseh Cutler and his son Ephraim dedicated much of their life to improving and enlarging the opportunity to, to advance in knowledge and appreciation of life through learning. And it was, it was as, as much the... Creation of Ephraim Cutler, that's the first university in Ohio, Ohio University.
university was created and and public education was created and he and and general rufus putnam who was another ardent champion of higher education and one of the leaders of the pioneers um neither of them had had proper education in their childhood and and so they knew how important education was and it's so fascinating to me that all five of these principal characters prided themselves as they grew older in the libraries they had built themselves in their own homes and and Ephraim Cutler helped create the first library in the Northwest Territory, which was known as the Coonskin Library because they sell coonskins back east to pay for the books they bought. <laughs> and public libraries, we take, our, we take our public libraries for granted, and we should never do that. Our public library system is one of the greatest of all the virtues and, 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 and advantages of our country's way of life. When you think that anybody can get essentially any book, they can get all that's needed for an education right at our, at, in their own hometown or their own city for free at the public library. No other country has anything like it, and we should never, ever take it for granted. Well, as you mentioned, one of the main figures in your book was the uh, Revolutionary War hero, General Rufus Putnam, who actually led the first group of pioneers from Massachusetts to Ohio in the end of 1787 and into the spring of 1788. You describe him as a man with, quote, good common sense, prescience on how to adapt means to ends, sound judgment, patience, high integrity, endurance, and he was full of good humor, and he loved to sing. Now, to yeah, me, that, that, that description of General Putnam matches up with many of your traits, David. Well, and so my, thank que- you, <laughs> my, my question much. is, as you wrote this book, being the historian you are, but also the fun human being that you are, did you ever project yourself into how you visualized and described Rufus Putnam? Well, yes, I do. did, and I, I also feel, and you and I have talked about this before, I feel very strongly that history isn't just about politics and the military. It's about everything, including art, including music, including literature and science. And, and um, uh, one of my favorite scenes in the whole book is when uh, the itinerant fiddler, violin player, who went from town to town or cabin community to cabin community playing his fiddle to make his living, uh, is chased up a tree by the wolves one night outside of Marietta. And he gets out his, somehow gets out his fiddle from off of his back and starts playing the fiddle in order to amuse or he hopes calm down the wolves that are trying to eat him alive. And he does it all through the night. Now, who knows to what degree? We know his name, Jedi, vaguely, whether this really really happened. But it didn't matter at the time because everybody at 
in that situation in the wilderness loved that story because they knew the wonder, the magic of, of music, and they loved to hear a fiddle player, and they loved to sing. And that was part of what got them through what the ordeal that they did. And I think also, for me at least, this story is a reminder of how hard everybody worked. The women, the children, the men, every day, hard work. And you were judged by whether you were a good worker or not. And they were working for survival. If they didn't work, it wasn't going to work. And it would go, and they would probably lose their lives. And, um, and the suffering they endured. Oh, my goodness. And the heartbreak. Children dying. Uh, Ephraim Cutler and his wife lost two children just in the, tra- in the process of transporting their lives across the mountains of Pennsylvania and down the Ohio. Two of them died en route before they even got there. Uh, others lost children from di- epidemic disease or, or drowning in the river. Um, but they kept on. They kept moving. They kept, they, they kept the faith, as it were. And, um, and, they, and they succeeded. Uh, Samuel Hildreth, as you know, the remarkable physician who arrived out there at age 22 knowing nobody, but he'd heard it was going to be a good, good place, good place to take up a new life. Uh, what he accomplished in his time there is just phenomenal. He became one of the leading scientists, particularly in geology and natural history, in the country. Aside from being a doctor making house calls on horseback into the wilderness of that time. And, uh, and, and he never left Marietta. He could have gone down to settle in Cincinnati or up to Cleveland where the future was getting brighter and bigger by the day. No, their loyalty, their loyalty was not just to their, their principles in life or their families, but to their community. And they continued to excel, and they get, and he did, to achieve national fame and recognition, particularly among the most learned people of the time, while living in Marietta, Ohio. And I, I love that about him and the others. And I think there's just so much to be learned from them, but it's also their, their, their story is one from which we can take heart and recall, remember who we are and what we stand for and what we hold to be the good life and how to treat one another. Well, David, there aren't any historians who have achieved what you've achieved thus far in terms of two Pulitzers and a Presidential Medal of Freedom citation. And I think there's a lot of fascination with how you do what you do. So let's talk about that first trek from Massachusetts to Ohio, which lasted from early December 1787 until the early spring of 1788. There were 48 men on the trip. They endured the winter. They traveled over the Allegheny Mountains. They, when they got to the headwaters of the Ohio River, they had to build boats to carry them down. 
So as you were attempting to visualize what those people looked like, what that journey looked like, trying to put the pieces together in your mind so as to be able to visualize it and then write about it, tell us about what diaries and letters and memoirs you found that allowed you to paint the vivid word pictures that you do of that historic trip. Well, each of the five characters in my book, uh, except uh, uh, each of them, and, and, and a number of the secondary figures in the story, uh, wrote diaries, wrote letters describing what they went through. Um, and I, I know that terrain. I know that Ohio River. I know the Allegheny Mountains from boyhood and my, my whole coming awake as a human being, as it were, all took place there. And I believe very, very strongly that if we don't know where people grew up, we don't know the, the territory, the ground, the, the, the landscape that shaped them, we can't really know them. When I was working on the Truman book, I realized that I'm not going to really understand Harry Truman unless I go out and spend a lot of time in western Missouri, in Indiana, in, in the Independence, out on where the Truman Farm was, all of that. I had to soak it up. I had to listen to how they talked, what kind of vocabulary they used. And, um, and of course, the same was true for John Adams. And, and in learning about John Adams and soaking up his life and, and, and reading his letters with, with his wife Abigail, between his wife Abigail and him, uh, I got to know them very well. I think one of the things that happens to a biographer or a historian who really spends a lot of time with the subjects they're writing about is that you get to know them in many ways better than you know people in real life. Because you don't get, in real life, you don't get to read other people's diaries or letters. And, and in some cases, these people really poured it out. Um, and, and their worries, their fears, their, their um, annoyance with, annoyances with some people who aren't measuring up and all that. And very often in the secondary characters, the letters of the secondary characters, there's even more. Um, and thank goodness for it. I, I also believe very strongly that you have to keep reminding yourself. You have to keep a sort of bedrock reality that these people were not living in the past. No one lives in the past. They're living in the present. Only it's their present, not yours. And you can't assume that their present was just like ours. It was not just like ours. Um, my feeling now more than ever is compared to those people, we're a bunch of softies. I don't think, I know I couldn't endure what they did, what they suffered, what they had to put up with. And they stand for, for accomplishment of a kind that we cannot take for granted. The 
lessons of history are innumerable, uh, to say the least. But two of the lessons that I feel one must reach into history to achieve or understand and are very much in need these days. One is empathy. The need, the capacity to put yourself in the other person's place. Put yourself in the place of these people in the 18th century, in the 19th century, under the circumstances that they had to face as the reality of their present. And secondly, gratitude. We, we are, if, you, if we don't take an interest in history, we don't know any history. There's no way that we can feel, understand the immense gratitude we should have to those who went before us, who provided us with so much that we just take for granted. I want to reach out and thank them all and, in, my, in wonderment at what they accomplished and not take it for granted. Oh, yeah, that's just what, what we have. Well, who did it? Who built those roads, those bridges, those schools, those universities? Who solved the problem of those diseases? All of that. And, and how did they do it? And how did they feel about doing it and accomplishing it? All of that. I've spent a good part of my work writing life writing about what I feel is, was worthy accomplishment at its at its peak in some ways. Building the Brooklyn Bridge, uh, creating the Panama Canal, uh, learning to fly an airplane, fly, taking off into the air for the first time. Well, those, those accomplishments don't just happen. And one of, the things, one of the things we do learn and should always keep in mind is almost nothing of real value or consequence, is ever accomplished alone. It's a joint effort. Let, let's and certainly writing books of the kind I write is a, is a superb example of a joint effort. The, special, the archivists, the librarians, the specialists in the history of Ohio or the history of the Ohio River, uh, the editors and and uh, art directors and all, and the and the help with research that have been provided for this book are all due to some probably 25 marvelous people uh, without whom the book would not have wound up being the way it is no doubt about and that we're very good to cite the um, awards and honors I've been the recipient of, and I'm very proud of that, to say the least. Well, but I think that I'm proudest. I think I'm proudest of all of the, of the fact of the fact that none of my books has ever been out of print over now more than fifty years. Yeah, there aren't many people who can say that. Uh, Let's uh, explore this empathy a little bit. One of the main threats that the pioneers in the Ohio country's early years had to contend with were the attacks and atrocities committed by some hostile tribes of Native Americans, yes. which, for, which for a time 
made the area become a hell on earth, although there were some friendly tribes in the area. President, yes. Washington, President Washington appointed General Matt Anthony Wayne to lead federal troops in the Ohio country, and they succeeded in taking control of the lands and ending the Indian threat. So where do you come out personally uh, and empathetically from a moral perspective on the dispossession of Native Americans from their native lands in Ohio by our military force in 1794? Well, it's a very sad and in many ways heartbreaking story. Uh, one thing that is not as well understood as it should be is to just refer to Native Americans or Indians is really to assume that they're all all the same. They're not. One tribe could be as different from another as imaginable. And in this area, uh, there were the Delawares, the Wyandots, Shawnees, Mingos, Chippewas, Ottawas, Senecas, lots of different tribes. And some got along pretty well. I mean, we got along, we, the white invaders, got along pretty well with them. Uh, other other situations, it was quite the reverse. There was dreadful killing on both sides, dreadful atrocities committed by both sides, not just by Indians, by no means, but by white settlers or white soldiers. And what's very interesting to me and, and admirable in the extreme is that because the people who settled Marietta always treated the Indians with fairness and understanding and the hope that we could get along, the, the, there was no attack on Marietta, no, except for individual Indians who, who were not behaving necessarily in any way according to their tribe. Um, so that the bloodshed was all further west uh, and and the management of the first attempt to um, end the Indian threat uh, was so mismanaged uh, so pathetic that we suffered the worst defeat uh, in the history of the country up until then um, and hundreds of Soldiers who were untrained and 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 uh, really just doing the job because they needed the money or needed the whiskey that was provided. Uh, it was they were slaughtered by very effective Indian forces, and that after that, that Washington then sent a far better general with a far better trained force uh, under Anthony Wayne to stop the Indian Wars, and they did. And they then really removed, uh, as was the verb, uh, the Indians from Ohio by moving them all west, farther west. And so for them, the, the Native Americans, that was as heartbreaking as anything in their lives. And... There's hardly a town or a, uh, a river or a, well, the, the name Ohio is an Indian name. 
uh, native name. And about all that was left were the, were the names of where, where these new uh, occupants were living. If the Indians did not believe that land was something that could be or should be owned. They felt that the that land, like the air we breathe, or the water in the rivers, belonged to everybody. And that was something that was simply deep in their whole understanding of life. And that's where the main conflict stemmed, came out of. Well, shifting gears to one of the more intriguing parts of, of the book, uh, the first big-name uh, celebrity-type person from the East who visited Marietta was none other than Aaron Burr in 1805, who arrived there one year after he had killed Alexander Hamilton. And in Marietta, he connected with a character named Harmon Blennerhassett, who was very rich and very strange. And both men proceeded to collaborate on a project that Burr had spearheaded which caused them to be charged with treason in 1807 for attempting to get states and territories in the American West to secede from the United States. Though both men were ultimately acquitted, what's your assessment of what Burr was truly attempting to get Blennerhassett and others to do? Well, we will ne we'll never really know because he told different people different explanations. And but it seems pretty clear that he what he intended to do was not exactly admirable and might even be called he might have even been called a traitor. And he hoped to recruit a lot of would be uh, uh, champions of his venture to break away to create a new country west of the Mississippi and farther down south out of what was then, much of which was then owned or controlled by Mexico. Um, and whether that w w was what would happen or not, but he he just dropped in, as it were, uh, on what was called Blennerhassett Island, which was owned by this Irish couple uh, who were immensely wealthy and immensely uh, different from anybody that was even... <laughs> Had ever set foot in the Ohio Valley, and started milking him uh, for his money, and to he was going to build up a fleet of boats, and and uh, he was going to move down the river with his new force of young men, ready for ready for battle, ready for adventure, and it all it all dissolved in a matter of months. And he recruited nobody out of the Ohio, Marietta section of Ohio. And he was very soon uh, on, the, on the run because the, the, the law, the government was after him. And as you said, he was eventually captured and tried, but not, commit, not convicted. Uh, he had a miserable life for the rest of his life and even went over to France to try to get uh, Napoleon to put together some scheme to create a new country. Um, it, it was as if this the spotlight of sort of ugly history chanced to land on that island, Blennerhassett Island, just about 12 miles down the river from Marietta. And 
But before that happened, the Blennerhasses had built a spectacular mansion on their, on their island. And that spectacular mansion was like nothing to be seen anywhere on the Ohio River or in, in anywhere except for some fine houses built back east. But um, uh, the Blennerhasses both had to flee for their lives the house was burned by accidental fire about 1811, but has been rebuilt, restored, and is now one of the, the landmark historic sites to visit when you're in the Marietta area. Blennerhassett Island is very important also to point out. It was part of Virginia on the other side of the Ohio, and that meant it, there were slaves there, and the Blennerhassett's had numerous slaves. Uh, one of the most important things about the, the long historic reach of this story is that by creating a territory where the slaves were illegal, not allowed, that meant that anyone on the Virginia side of the river who was black or a slave uh, could, in theory, if they got across the river, river be free. And that brought on the Underground Railroad, which was, of course, a huge story and an important story. Um, and Harriet Beach Ristow came out because her, with her husband, who was teaching in Cincinnati, and lived there for a number of years. And that's where she wrote Uncle Tom's Cabin, which had more historic impact uh, than any novel ever written by an American ever. Uh, so she, too, is part of this story of the Ohio country and its impact on the country at large. Well, let's, let's I think talk also, about... I think also one of the most powerful moments in this whole story is when Ephraim Cutler is serving in the, in the newly established legislature of the Ohio Territory, the state of Ohio, and... There's a move after Jefferson became president, and the Jeffersonians were, were gaining considerable power in Ohio. There was a move to end the ban on slavery, to admit slaves into Ohio. And Rufus Putnam and, and Ephraim Cutler were battling against that move in the legislature to maintain that there will be no slavery in this territory. And the day came when they were going to cast the vote, and Ephraim was deathly ill in bed. He couldn't get out of bed. And Rufus Putnam, who was old enough to have been his father, came to him and said, they're going to vote on the slavery bill today, and you've got to get up and come in and vote. And the story is that, that several of his associates and Putnam carried him into the legislature uh, on a stretcher. Uh, that I could never authenticate. All we know is that somehow or other he got to the legislature sick as he was and cast and spoke out against taking away the freedom of blacks in Ohio adamantly, ardently and cast his vote and 
his side of maintaining no slavery as the rule of, of, the, of the state won by one vote. Hmm. Now, there he was at death's door carrying the banner, if you will, of his father into the actual fray, into the actual fight, and, and succeeding. If, if, you, if you wrote that scene, that, that event, in a novel, uh, the editor would, your editor would probably tell you it's not possible. It wouldn't really happen like that. Well, yes, it did. Well, I, I, like many people, hope that the, uh, somebody uh, in Hollywood will take the pioneers and do for it what somebody did with John Adams and turn it into a movie or a miniseries, and that will certainly be one of the, the key scenes, yes, the most sure dramatic scenes. Uh, David, let me... Yeah, I, people ask me, uh, who is my favorite of these characters? Well, it's hard to say, but I think Ephraim is among the most admirable Americans I've ever come to know. And he didn't achieve great fame, and he didn't achieve great wealth, and he didn't own a lot of fancy houses or anything. And and he and he, he suffered terrible losses, and he he was strength of character. That's what he had. They all did strength of character. Well, let me close with my last question about something you touched on generally a few minutes ago, but I'd like for you to get a little more specific, and that is one thing that became clear from reading your book was that the pioneer women in the Ohio country had lives that were every bit as difficult and challenging as the pioneer men. Absolutely. So give us, give us a summary of the most important responsibilities that pioneer women took on on behalf of their families and households. Help people to visualize what their daily lives were like out there. Well, one of the regrets about this project is that there were very few comparable diaries or letters by women to those by the men. And that seems to have been because women of that day were brought up to understand that they must not ever complain. And a lot, you know, much they had they could have complained about. But their, their life was work from the first light of day to well into night. They had to make all the clothes that people wore, their children wore. And most, most of them had large families, um, eight, ten children, were quite common. Uh, um, Joe Barker's, by the time, before he passed on, he had 63 grandchildren. Unimaginable. <laughs> and all those people had to be fed. They had to be clothed. So they had, the women had to make clothing, had to create the food, had to carry those heavy iron pots to boil things, to cook things in the open fireplace. They had to cope with rats and snakes and, and wolves, and they had to cope with disease of their children and of themselves. There were no anesthetics. They had to cope with childbirth and the pain of that and the pain of toothaches and, and uh, injured, injuries from accidents 
They had to be able to go out and chop firewood. They had to be able to nurse the aged. They had to be able to endure the uh, same kind of adversities and sufferings as they did their husbands. And they will never get sufficient credit for what they did and how they remained brave to the end. Well, that's a fantastic uh, overview of, of pioneer life, and uh, I just can't thank you enough for having the initiative and the imagination to bring this story to life that I know is going to be enjoyed by hopefully millions of Americans that otherwise would have never been known. So I encourage you. Well, I, know tell me, I appreciate that kind of a response very much, particularly coming from you. Thank you very much. All right. Well, give Rosalie my regards. and uh, I'm, I sure I'm, will, and keep up your good work. All right. Will do. Have a great day. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. David McCullough is recognized by most as being America's leading historian. His books have elevated millions of Americans' understanding of our precious history. David says, quote, To me, history ought to be a source of pleasure. It isn't just part of our civic responsibility. It's an enlargement of the experience of being alive, just the way literature or art or music is. Close quote. You can find David McCullough's new book, The Pioneers, The Heroic Story of the Settlers Who Brought the American Ideal West, on Amazon or wherever good books are sold. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. Make sure you catch all my podcasts on Spotify, SoundCloud, the website of the Washington Independent Review of Books, or wherever you find your podcasts. Until next time, remember the words of my old friend Bobby Bregan, you can't hit the ball with a bat on your shoulder. This is Talmadge Boston of the law firm Shackelford, Bowen, McKinley, and Norton. Thanks for listening.